0: Sean Weiss.
1: All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Compliance Guy. As always, I want to say thank you to each and every single one of you for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with me and my special guests for a little while as we get to talk about all things regulatory compliance. Today, I am joined by Jared Bailey, who is the CEO of MedPlace. and. MedPlace is an organization that provides people like myself, um, health law firms, uh, medical organizations looking to do peer reviews, those of us looking for medical experts to testify in cases, administrative hearings, peer reviews, things of that nature, they have built a significant network of board certified licensed physicians here in the United States. And, um, it's, it's actually really a fascinating process. And while, you know, those of you who have been listening to this program, we're now in our sixth season. You know, that I don't bring on any vendors who are trying to sell anything. That's not what this is about. This is about us talking about a defined Need in the industry a niche that was uh, uh, created by Jared Bailey and his organization, and to help provide additional resources to all of you out there who are listening to the program, who consider me to be part of your trusted circle of uh, resources and experts. So, with that said, I want to introduce Jared Bailey and Again, Jared, thanks for being on the program today. It's 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 great to see you again. Uh, I know we met uh, for the very first time at HCCA when I heard what you did. I was like, holy crap, I've got an immediate need. And it was literally a matter of minutes before Jared sprung into action and had my team connected with his team and the law firm that I was working with trying to identify an expert for a cardiology client who was in the middle of going through a TAM, a whistleblower case, and they needed that expert. So with that said, uh, Jared, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. I know you're extremely busy, but you know I appreciate you carving out some time for me.
2: Yeah. I love it, Sean. Thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, I, I love any kind of conversations around technology and healthcare and insurance and legal because... You know, I've I've done technology for the last 22 years. I was in various venture-backed startups. I built a factory that builds companies. And I love innovation, right? I've seen it across lots of spaces. But, you know, when you look at the opportunity for innovation in healthcare and in in insurance and and, in the legal realms, it's just really, really, really ripe. And I just find it all fascinating. Right. So thanks for having me on. I remember when we when we talked, you said, oh, my gosh, can you find me a cardiologist? And I think like I said, is is tomorrow morning soon enough? <laughs> yeah. <that> really? <laughs> so, yeah, really. So uh, really, it's good. It's it's really gratifying to be able to take technology, frankly, that we've seen applied in other industries and just apply it to uh, places like healthcare and uh, be able to see the same kind of transformations.
1: Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. You would think being a first world country, right, Hmm. being an industry that's, what, $3 trillion a year, that Hmm. we would have had by now advancements in technology. I'm not talking about advancements in medicine. I'm talking about advancements in technology that allow for healthcare professionals, right, to be Hmm. more efficient, to be... Um, you know, to have better access to different types of platforms, and obviously, we're seeing an explosion now with artificial intelligence. Hmm. Um, that's a whole different conversation, and I know. Well, we I'll go there to, with you if you want. Yeah, to, and so. I and, and you know what, I kind of do want to go there, right? Because you know, it directly impacts what you're doing as well. Because we're starting to see a lot of providers who are using artificial intelligence, um, chat GPT, as an example, they created a provider platform where you could put in certain designated terms and parameters, and it will actually create a progress note for Mm. a patient encounter, or it will create a, um, an appeal letter to an insurance Mm. company for medical necessity. So it's really interesting because I'm guessing, you know, a lot of physicians are starting to play with this technology. And the interesting thing that I'm seeing is the people who have created Chat GPT, the other people who are behind the creation of this artificial intelligence, are literally coming out to the government and saying, We need regulation. This yeah. is some dangerous stuff that we're, well, we're playing
2: with. Did you see there's a story that the, the godfather of AI just, uh, I think he just left Google yes. saying, I'm sorry. I didn't realize, or I, I justified it along the way. The Pandora's box that I was opening, saying somebody else would do it if I'm not going to do it. And he left saying, like this, this, uh, this—the cat's out of the bag—and yeah. um, and we're not really ready for it.
1: No, we're not ready for it. I, I don't think humanity's ready for it. You know, I, I remember years and years ago watching a movie with Will Smith, iRobot, hmm. and everybody, you know, because it was artificial intelligence. you know they were just robots they can't feel anything they don't have you know emotions right yeah and all of a sudden this thing begins to assimilate with human nature it begins to you know take on the identity of really what a human would be and you know you think about that now i think that movie is probably at least a decade old and you think about that now to where we are, and I mean, I have clients who are telling me, Sean, we have just built robots that go into, because there's such a shortage of nurses in healthcare, and especially in skilled nursing facilities, that they have built these robots that go into the patient's room in these skilled nursing facilities, and they say, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, how are you today? Are you good? Are you feeling bad? Are you happy? Are you Mm -hmm. sad? Do you need anything? And the people interact with this robot. And I can only imagine, you know, an elderly person in a skilled nursing facility (laughs) seeing this robot coming into the room and saying, hi, Mr. Jones, how are you today? I'd be like, I just used the bathroom in the bed, man. How do you think I am? Can you get me somebody with a heartbeat?
2: Well, Sean, you know, that robot may have a better bedside manner than some nurses, though. That's the silver lining.
1: (laughs) You know, listen, you know, and and I will say this. um, Listen, there's a lot to be said about bedside manner, right? Both physicians, clinicians in general. Um, You know, obviously, you know, there's always those who have. You know, they they went into something for the wrong reasons and they hate doing what they do, but they're burned out now. They're burned out now. You know, think about this. You know, first responders are always people who run to the problem, right? They Mm -hmm. run to, you know, the issue when everybody else is running away. And these are people who were demonized during the public health emergency because they knew more about these vaccines than the average person. Yeah. And when they said, ain't no way I'm putting that stuff in my body. Everybody else said, well, you're an anti-vaxxer. You're a horrible person, blah, 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 blah. And you know, now all of these health systems that fired these frontline workers, these doctors, these nurses, these technicians, you know, who said, you know what, I'm going to go find something else to do in my life. Now we're left with even a bigger shortage of nurses and doctors and medical technicians than what we had prior to the pandemic. And it's shameful
2: because I've seen it. Yeah.
1: Everybody's I've, seen it. Yeah.
2: I've got, I got a couple of friends, uh, both ER doctors, they both left the left medicine. They're doing a uh, Bitcoin and real estate full-time now.
1: Yeah. Um, it's, and they were
2: great doctors.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, I have a very, very good friend. He, um, he was a urologist, a, a, a world renowned urologist. Uh, on the West Coast, and he's always had this um, fascination with wines, and he's become a rare wine collector now. That's what he does. And the industry lost a brilliant, brilliant surgeon. It's, yeah. it's, it's a shame. Listen, yeah. I'm not a politician. I don't play political, you know, sides. Uh, I stay away from that stuff. But I will say this to the first responders that you know, and, and I have a lot of nurses and doctors that listen to this program. I love you guys. I respect you. I thank you for the hard work that you do. I know how bad things have been, but you know, where others may have uh, had negative things to say, there are still a lion share of us out there who respect you, appreciate you and love you for what you do. So,
2: yeah, um, you know, it's funny this, and I know we'll get there, but yeah, the uh, physician burnout was a big part of the thesis around MedPlace when we first started. We started at the beginning of COVID, um, or just, just after a couple months after COVID had really hit and we were all in lockdown and I was, uh, was looking around and you had two types of doctors. You had the ones that were doing hundred hour weeks and the ones that weren't working at all. Yep. And it was a big slap in the face to everybody. Like what, you know, what's happening and what's the future of medicine look like? And what's my own future look like? I'm in a crisis here. Do I want to do medicine, continue right. doing it, especially in an environment like this, or how do I do medicine? Right. When, um, you know, when all of the, uh, you know, procedures and things like that were on hold. So um, yeah, that was a big part of it. It's like, how do you create for a physician who becomes so specialized that they really can't, can't do something else, right. They're not going to go do something else professionally, right. They're highly trained neurologist. Right. And how do you create opportunity for those kinds of doctors to uh, create balance in their lives? You know, how do they use all that experience uh, to, uh, you know, do work that maybe isn't always all clinical, because, you know, when you're doing 100% clinical work, it's really easy to get burned out, right? When you're doing that year after year, decade after decade. And so part of the thesis was, you know, there's, there's the, to use a technical term, there's marketplaces in lots of different industries, right? So Uber is a marketplace. It's a marketplace of drivers on one side and people like you and I looking for a ride on the other. And you've got other um, these, of these, these marketplaces that have developed in these industries, and they've changed industries. They've, they've Like, for example, like Upwork is a marketplace where you can go find everywhere from you know, designers to developers to branding people, and SEO people, the whole nine yards. And it used to be that we had to go to agencies, right? These big agencies that would help us do our digital marketing. We had to know somebody. And all of a sudden, Upwork pops up, and you can go find a kid in Vietnam that is the best SEO guy you'll find on the planet. And he's, you know, available for $15 an hour and it's solved. Right. And that's what the power of marketplaces do is they flatten the world and they create, they they dismantle all of these artificial barriers between brains and talent and the people who need to access it. And so, you know, you look at, at those kind of plays and you ask yourself, how can that impact healthcare? You know, we talk about inefficiencies. We talk about, you know, some of the best minds in healthcare are, geographically locked, right? We have Mayo Clinic down here in Scottsdale, some of the best minds in healthcare are at Mayo Clinic, they are geographically locked to Scottsdale. So how do you like dismantle that, right? How do you create um, the plumbing and the access to take those brains and make them more accessible for lots of different kinds of things? Well, it turns out when you create marketplaces, you create opportunities for doctors to also do things that are not clinical, right? Give me something. You know, we have doctors that run around, and you know, we're a marketplace, MedPlace is a marketplace, and you know, we're an app in the pocket of many physicians around the country. And they're sitting there practicing medicine today, and they're in an OR at, at uh, you know, name the hospital, and their phone pings, and it's a med, it's a med, it's the MedPlace app saying, "Hey, you've been asked to peer review a colleague on the other side of the country, or you've been asked to look at this MedMount case and provide an opinion on." it. Um, and the joy that that creates. To somebody who is has been 20, 30 years locked into their specialty, um, the ability to be able to use your experience, but not use it clinically, to be able to do it on your own time, to feel like you've got this like income stream. It's really delightful to see, but it's also very activating. And I see, and we watch it every day, the best specialists in the country feel like their influence is now extending across, across medicine. It's really cool.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's breaking up for them, the monotony, right? You know, if you're a general surgeon and day after day, all you're doing is removing gallbladders and appendix and, you know, spleens every once in a blue moon or you're, you know, doing a, uh, you know, a bowel resection or you're doing, you know, something that is routine to you. And now all of a sudden you get an opportunity to peer review somebody Mm -hmm. and to. Maybe forensically forensically analyze analyze. something. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Or to sit in front of a jury and to, you know, I always think of that movie Malice, right? With uh, Alec Baldwin, you know, when he played that uh, trauma surgeon. Um, But, you know, to be able to sit in front of a jury and to share your knowledge and to, you know, take something so complex and break it down to its fundamental, you know, uh, uh, basics, right? so let's let's talk a little bit about because I'm I'm always fascinated with technology, right? Yeah, I'd love to understand the technology behind this sort of the brainchild of what made you wake up one day and say, "This is what's missing in healthcare."
2: Well, it's interesting. I didn't wake up one day thinking about it. Um, I now I've thought a lot about what's missing in in lots of different industries. I've just been involved in tech for so long, but it was uh, COVID. It just hit. And I was actually getting ready to buy a company, uh, an existing company out there. And then COVID hit and all the MA stuff just evaporated instantly with COVID. Right. And all the financing, all the deals, everything went pear shaped because everyone was just trying to hold on for dear life. Right. And uh, fortunately, that happened because I got a phone call at the time from a, a med mal insurance carrier. So a carrier that's insuring doctors and physicians groups against malpractice. And uh and it was somebody from their innovation team. And they said, Jared, you haven't met us before, but um, we have this need. We do this thing called a case review all the all day, every day. It's how we establish our risk in uh with a claim or a harm event or a lawsuit. We need someone who's current in medicine, in you know, every kind of specialty you've ever heard of, to weigh in on cases, right? We share them some medical records, they give us an opinion, they tell us the good, the bad, and the ugly, and then we We take that and we form a strategy to, to how to best deal with, with this particular harm event. how to support the, the provider, how to support the patient, how to support everyone in the process, but we need to understand what went right, what went wrong. I said, great, case review. They said so, but we need to do that really, really quickly, like much faster than it's possible right now. So they go, we need somebody to build the Uber for physicians. Oh, that's interesting. Um, like drive us around, no, no, well, we want to share, you know, uh, medical records, be able to get on their busy calendars, be able to reduce the overhead on them so that they can enter into this kind of work, right? Um, even though they're busy practicing medicine. And so um, I went and I was talking to some physician friends of mine, and I was like, hey, what do you think about case reviews? Oh, we love it. We love it. It makes me a better doctor if I can do those, right? Um, what else do you do? Well, we, I do peer reviews. Oh, I do prior authorization. Oh, I do uh, independent medical exams for work comp. I do, you know, and there's this laundry list of interesting work that physicians get engaged with, but they don't really know how to do it. Like they don't know how to get into it. They don't know how to do more of it. You know, I used to, I was a medical expert witness on a case and I loved it because I got a call from some guy who knew me um, and, or some guy from some guy who knew me. Right. And, uh, and they're like, but I don't know how to like get of those i don't know how to do more of that i'm a physician i'm back then practicing medicine right and so you know i looked at it and i said this is a marketplace opportunity this is an opportunity you've got this you've got the need on both sides you've got companies you've got physicians they want to engage each other there's just too much friction involved you know there's the best neurosurgeon in the world actually probably wants to do work like this but how do you get on their calendar how do you you know what rates do you charge and contracts flowing and invoices and doctors don't know don't have invoice systems. And so you, you look at that and you break it down and you ultimately come up with where workflow automation problems, right. Or workflow automations would solves those types of things. And then you create things like marketplaces where people can be discovered and you can start now um, looking at someone deconstructing their CV and really understanding what are they good at? How would you match this person to a company that that's looking for those types of things, right? And so you get into, you know, natural language processing, you get into AI for things like that, to, um, like I said, just workflow I have all these problems, like I find a doctor and I wanna be able to like give them medical records. Have you ever seen a medical record out of a EHR? I know you've probably seen way too many. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, to joke a horse, right? Um, but how do you, how do you streamline that? How do you make that easy for a doctor to consume? Right. Um, so there's all these kind of workflow problems, but that was essentially the, the crux. So I came back to that company. I said, look, I think this needs to be a marketplace. I think this is bigger than MedMel. I think this is bigger than anything. I think what physicians need is a place where they can go and claim all different kinds of revenue generating opportunities that are non-clinical. Um, and, uh, And then we solve all these problems to be able to do that. And I said, great, if you want to build that, we'll be your first customer and your first investor. And it's that moment that started uh, what is now MedPlace. Now we're in all 50 states. We've got hundreds and hundreds of physicians all around the country. And it's very gratifying work, but it's mostly gratifying because I get to watch, because the answer to healthcare isn't external to healthcare. The answer is already there. It's the people in healthcare. You just need to dismantle a lot of those. those, You know, that's uh, interesting.
1: Yeah, you know, I think the pro here's the here's the problem that I have with a lot of companies coming into healthcare. They know nothing about it, right? Mm-hmm. They yeah. come into the space because they, as I said, they know it's a three trillion dollar industry and everybody wants a piece of it. But what they don't understand is the healthcare industry is not like any other industry. Yeah, that's right. You know, I tell people all the time from a regulation standpoint. I think we are probably the most regulated industry outside of nuclear. Hmm. Um we have more regulations. We have more statutes, laws, acts, rules that have yeah. to be followed and complied with. Um, but you know it's you know i've I've always considered myself to be, you know, an entrepreneur, right? You know, I've started my own businesses. you know i've I've been brought into businesses to help grow the businesses. Um, so for me, it's always, it's always a treat to get to talk to another entrepreneur because, you know, I sit back and as I listen to your story, I try to resonate with that. And I try to think about the path that you've taken and what were the life lessons and what were the trials by fire and how does that match up to sort of the things that, you know, I've gone through my partners Mm -hmm. in, my current firm, the things that we've gone through. So it's, it's, it's refreshing to hear that. I love the fact that, you know, you had the mindset to be able to say, we're going to offer physicians an opportunity to take their clinical knowledge and apply it in the administrative areas or Mm. in the legal area or in, you know, the clinical non hands-on area. Right. So, Patient safety you, and quality. Yeah, patient right. safety, all that kind of stuff. So let me ask you, what are the requirements and what are the qualifications that an individual has to meet in order to be accepted um, as an expert on your panel?
2: Well, good question. So it uh, there's there's there are a few factors that go into it, but for the most part, you're really kind of ready to start providing an expert opinion when you've got about 10 years of practice under your belt. Right. We have certainly have physicians that have under that. But they're usually in, in specialties that are a bit more niche and, and hard to come by. Right. For the most part, you're looking for experience. Right. You don't get pattern recognition after three years practicing medicine. Once you've logged a decade, a couple decades, you really start to become valuable. And you've probably as you're looking for like experts to sit on the witness stand. Right. They have to have enough experience to speak from. Right. And they have to have authority that they speak from that. You also have to be able to articulate your position. You have to be able to boil down complicated medical terms into layman's terms, right? Um, and you have to also have to have a you know a pretty clean background. Doesn't mean that you've never been sued. I don't think there's what is it like one percent of doctors never get sued while they're you know, during their course. Yeah, of practice it, it's medicine. such
1: it's such a minute number. I mean, listen, this is a highly litigious you know industry. You know, I tell people all the time, you got to remember medicine's an art it's not an exact science and there's a reason why they call it the practice of medicine but you said something i want to i want to ask you a question about for compliance nerds like myself and Mm -hmm. and legal nerds when you talk about backgrounds do you put your potential physicians that are going to be on the platform do they go through like an exclusion screen or a sanction screen um, whereby you're looking at like the office of inspector general to make sure that they're not excluded or that they're not sanctioned or that they have not been. There's aware- no
2: actions from any boards. Right? right. Yeah. Um, You're doing background checks. Yeah. You you really you know, you, you have to imagine it's like, look, if I'm going to be sitting on the stand someday. And someone's going to be cross-examining me, and they're going to come with my whole background. You can't have something that comes up that's going to, um, you know, undermine the authority of that expert, right? So you do have to to pass a certain level of muster. Now, that's not to do everything on our platform, right? So being able to do peer reviews that is not quite the same rigor um, and legal requirements as uh, something like a case review that might lead to a, you know, a, or or a case that's you know already. Um, you know, heading towards court for like a med mail case, for example. So it also depends on what you're doing, the amount of rigor that you have to have and the the we'll call it spotlessness of your background that you need.
1: Yeah, you know, because you know, obviously that's always going to be a big question from law firms, from, you know, organizations where there's either ongoing litigation, potential litigation, the threat of litigation, whatever it may be making sure that their expert isn't going to open up a surprise bag for them. Right. Uh, exactly.
2: Like, Nobody know, likes surprises I, in this business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That, yeah.
1: There's no doubt no. about that. So yeah. you have physicians in how many specialties approximately? Uh
2: hundred and forty specialties.
1: Wow. And, so you're going all the way down to like the minuscule, like uh, yeah. pharmacy, microbiology, like, you know, those dentists
2: uh, you get into like a pediatric fill in the blank, right? So yeah. I need, a, I need a pediatric neurosurgeon, right? And um, just really, really obscure things because we've seen it all. We do so much uh, work with carriers and TPAs around the US that they just, you
1: know, so well, you're getting you're, sued. You're, yeah, so are you working on both sides? And and there's nothing wrong with that, right? I think I think working, you know, for me, I work on both sides of the aisle because I think that makes me a more well-rounded expert for whoever wants to use my services because, you know, because I've been on the prosecution side, I can think like a prosecutor. I've been yeah. on the defense side, so I could think like defense counsel or I could think like a witness for a prosecution or a witness for defense counsel. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I actually think that makes you a better, you know, a better subject matter expert. Well, and
2: we we advise our experts that too that they should really be approaching medical legal work. If they want to do a lot of it, they should be approaching it as how do I how do I show my impartiality by the work that I'm doing, right? And so we encourage them to do plaintiff side, defense side work. Um, by the reality of kind of where we came from, we end up very heavily leaning towards the defense side, yeah. um, and really as a as a technology person and as a platform person. I really want to build something that's just entirely neutral. I just want to build a utility for physicians to make their lives better and to help make medicine better. If you get the best minds looking at a case and they're they're really teasing out, is this case, should this case really be litigated or not? Both sides want to get to the same answer of should this case be pursued. Right. So in an ideal world, an idealistic world where the law firms don't run everything necessarily, um we are all trying to get to the same answer as quickly as possible. So in my in my rose- colored glasses, uh, you know, technology person, let's just be a platform. The reality is is today we do uh, mostly defense side work, but
1: um, So let me ask you this question. you'''re you're, you're, you're an architect, right? You're a builder, you're a designer, you're a tech person.
2: I'm a human centered design practitioner.
1: That's interesting. I've never heard that one. That's pretty. Well, it's using
2: empathy to, to apply technology to, to real human behavior rather than trying to fight human behavior. You design with it, around you They coexist. They coexist. Technology should be should be invisible when it's done well. It should sort of get out of the way and
1: let. Yeah, it's you... a seamless integration between humanity and the next step, right? Yeah.
2: And at some point we'll wet wire our, our brains into the AI and then we'll we'll all
1: have arrived. But. Oh, yeah. You, listen, it, it, it's coming. The microchips will be implanted at some point. It's kind of inevitable. Like, could yeah. you imagine
2: having to like type something in to, you know, ask chat GPT the answer?
1: Like, we just want to think about it. Yeah. You just think about it and all of a sudden it appears. <laughs> you got it. It's kind of frightening, man. It is. So let me ask you. So, you know, as as a human designer using empathy what is what's on the horizon for you because i know i know if you're like me you're never satisfied right you achieve a goal and you know before you achieve it you're always thinking what's next where do i go from here how do i improve upon this or what you know do i make a right at albuquerque or do i go left which you know what's my next direction
2: yeah. Well, in the med place world, it's really about continue to add we call them workflows, right? So a case review is a workflow, a peer review for a hospital is a workflow, an independent medical exam is a workflow. Uh, So it's adding more and more workflows to the platform so that physicians have more and more opportunities of things that they can choose to do, right? So for us, it's going to be about adding that, creating more opportunity for for physicians, but then also by doing that, creating more value. When you build a marketplace, the value comes in the the entire marketplace when it's full on both sides, right? And so uh, the more and larger you build that, the more, you know, Uh, macro value you're providing in the industry so for us it's a lot of that there's going to be a lot of things that that we do along the way with ai and other things to help facilitate that sort of vision but you know for me for MedPlace, it's you know in let's say in the next four or five years i want a third of all specialists in the u.s to be doing work on our platform and and for that to be meaningful work right um what's next in the industry i mean there's so many opportunities you know you know this just being in the industry you see where all the the breakpoints are right. Um, it's inevitable that AI is going to come in and start to solve things. It's also going to create a lot of problems that will be solved eventually, but they're they're going to be very short, short to midterm problems that we're not ready for. The types of jobs that they will dis- that AI will displace it's going to be very significant, right? And and where do those people go to? Um, it used to be robots would replace the line worker, but then they go into information jobs, and information jobs would catch everybody, right? Well, AI is is threatening information jobs. And what what then does that mean that, that people will move to? Those things haven't really been figured out yet, right?
1: Um, and that's what's but, so
2: scary. Yeah, it, it's right. Because you and I aren't smart enough to know what's going to happen. Now, what we can do is we can try to maintain a, um, a relatively open regulation. This is my perspective, relatively open regulation and economic conditions so that the entrepreneurs of the world solve that problem, right? That's what they're the best at, right? You give them the sandbox to solve the problems and they inevitably come forth with solutions. Then they also come forth with problems like AI and what we're going right. to do as a society with it. Um, you know. But yeah, we're going to have to go through that, that transition period for sure.
1: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what the future holds. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at this stuff, the future is now. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you know, the present is the past. So things are things are coming at a rapid pace. Go ahead. What are we going to say? Well, Sean, I've got I've got
2: four kids. They're between 12 and 16. Right. So pretty tight rotation there. All of my kids have crypto portfolios. All of them have helped start a subscription business, Uh, meaning somebody's paying you something every month for something. Right. Um, uh, they all understand AI and have used it. I was the first one to, you know, I was talking to my kids, one of my kids that we were getting ready for school. And, and I said, uh, what's your book report on this, this week? Oh, it's on, uh, Tom Sawyer brought up chat GPT. I said, write me a, uh, you know, book report on Tom Sawyer and in real time it's writing and I'm showing it to my kid and his eyes went wide and you could see. I'll, you know, the the thought bubble coming out of his head was, I'm never going to write another paper again. Now, is that a dangerous thought? Like, yeah, it's a dangerous thought. But it's the reality of where we're going. And what I want my kids to know is I want them to understand everything. Because when you understand it, you don't have to be afraid of it. And then you can figure out how to use it as a tool. If, however, they go through life ignoring that AI is a and they're or they're afraid of it, they're taught to be afraid of it. They're gonna be on the wrong side of, of whatever AI disrupts in the industry,
1: right? Yeah. You know what scares me the most, and you know, I have three kids now. My kids are significantly older than yours because I'm probably significantly older than you. You're looking great, Sean. I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> I, I would I would tell people what my secret is, but I'd probably be banned from the internet forever. Um <sighs> You know, my kids are 31, 29, and 27. I didn't know they get
2: that big. That's amazing.
1: It's frightening. Yeah. I, I. You know, I just, I'll tell you, I got six grandbabies. And my five-year-old grandbaby, her name's Emmy Rose. She. So my phone rang two nights ago, and my son-in-law's name pops up. And I said, hey, what's up, B? And it wasn't my son-in-law is my granddaughter, who's five years old. She says, Papa, where are you? I said, I'm driving home, sweetheart. What's the matter? Papa, my tooth is really loose and it needs to come out. Can you pull it out? Now, mind you, I, you know, I, I, my life is kind of an interesting one with, you know, being in regulatory compliance, health law, doing the kind of stuff I mean, you know hearings and all the nonsense that I deal with every single day. And I, and, and that day just happened to be a crappy day. I I just was not having a great day. You know, everything was running late. Everything was behind, but you know, that one split second where she said, Papa, can you pull out my tooth? It changed the whole outcome of the rest of my day. Sure. But where I was going with that, with the kids is that. Chat GPT scares me mm. from the standpoint that our country, from a learning standpoint, we fall so far behind so many other countries. And now you put a tool into the hands of kids who are struggling with reading, mathematics, science, you know, social studies, whatever the the, the topics are. And now you teach them to say, chat GPT, build me a book report to use your example on Tom Sawyer. Now, I get where you're going. You're trying to help your children understand that this is not something to be afraid of. This is not the big bad wolf blowing down your house, right? This is something that if you understand it, you can control it and you can know how to use it to your benefit. But my concern is... There's a lot of kids that are going to look at this and they're going to be like, I never have to write another freaking book report. I'm just going to type in, give me a, I mean, think about this. Yeah. Think about this. The chat GPT took the bar exam and oh, yeah. scored a B plus. Do you know that the average grade on the bar exam is like a C
0: amazing
1: average grade in chat GPT out of nowhere. Gets a B plus. I'm like, holy crap! Maybe I could use Chat GPT to finally sit for the bar.
2: <laughs> right. Hey, let's both pass the bar.
1: <coughs> Why not?
2: Ah, but, unbelievable.
1: You know, it's it it listen. It's a fascinating. It's a fascinating topic. Um, you know, in our company, you know, we have a program called Compliance Risk Analyzer, and I think you and I may have talked about that a little bit at the HCCA show, and. While we use the term AI, we don't use it in the sense of artificial intelligence. We use it in the sense of augmented intelligence, right? Yeah. Because it still requires the human component to be able to write the algorithms, you know, and then it it it, we we allow the machines to learn, right? We use machine learning to get smarter and to you know, we we build predictive analytic models using Mm -hmm. this software program. So You know, we're already using it in our and in in doctors management. And, you know, it's it's fascinating to be able to see each quarter as we add more utilization, you know, information for our providers, how the machines are learning the patterns and how they're starting to identify these high risk services, medium risk services, low risk services, all from a risk mitigation you know, auditing and monitoring standpoint. So I, I, I see the technology. I've been doing this. I've been in this industry now 30 years at the end of this year. Mm. And, you know. It's a different uh, world, isn't it? It is. You know, when I first, when I, when I got my first real job out of school in 1995 or 96, I forget. Um, you know, I was talking to my boss at the time who was this young guy. He was the VP of a company. And I said to him, you know, I just read this article by a computational statistician because I was so bored. I had nothing else to do. And I said, the guy, like the, <laughs> yeah, the guy is talking about predictive analytic modeling, advanced mathematics and statistics. And the fact that data in the next five years will be will become king in healthcare, and this will be the future. It, it, you know of healthcare and this is how we will evolve and he said hmm. Brent Brent Garrison was his name and he said to me so what do you want to do about it and I said I don't know I said I'd like to go it's a four or five day course and he goes good go take the course and when you come back on Monday expect that you're going to give a full presentation of everything that you learned to all hmm. the consultants in the bullpen uh, in the bullpen yeah I said, yeah, all right, cool, no problem. So I go, I fly down to Tampa to this guy named Frank Cohen. And little did I know, he was the godfather of statistics. And I sat in this course for four days. And at the end of the last day, it was a Friday, I was supposed to be flying home back to Atlanta. And I remember just sitting there after everybody else was gone and Frank's packing up. Back then, we didn't have you know, LCD projectors, you know, you had an overhead lamp projector with these uh, transparencies that, you know, were printed off at Staples or whatever the store was back then. And you used an erasable marker to make your, your notes on it. And I just remember sitting there thinking to myself, I am so screwed. (laughs) I have to go back and I have to tell 20 something other consultants all about Predictive analytic modeling, advanced mathematics and statistics. And I don't know the first thing that I (laughs) learned over four days. And do you know that guy sat down with me and I wound up spending the weekend in Tampa at his and his wife's compound. No kidding. Fascinating. Yeah. And he spent an entire weekend teaching me statistics, quantitative methods of business, predictive analytic modeling, and, you know, just other mathematical things that. It just blew my mind, and I was able to go back. But my point to that is, in 1995, I read an article that said data is going to be the future of healthcare. And mm-hmm. I looked at that, and I thought to myself, hmm, sounds reasonable to me. Now, here we are, 30 years into my career, and we have machines that are getting ready to take over everything that we
2: know. Yeah, have. yeah. And they're going to find the data better than we do. Yeah, they surface it already. That's why we talk about when you talked about like assisted decision making. That's really where AI is coming through right now. Nobody's ready to trust it to diagnose and you know decide treatment and all that. But if you're not using AI to surface the things that you would normally miss, I mean, you look at like a medical record with a case. You might have a, you might have a case with ten thousand records. How is a doctor going to find that needle in that haystack? Um, that's going to be critical to that case, uh, you, you know, and it is, he might, but, but he might not, right? And so mm-hmm. AI's real promise right now is servicing the things that we probably should look at and then decide right. from there, so.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I can't wait great. to hear, yeah, Jared, I can't wait to hear what you all at MedPlace are doing in the future. For those of you who are attorneys, you're the senior physicians in your group, you're the chief compliance officers, you're the CEOs, you're looking for uh, outside clinical expertise to do peer reviews, to engage with your physicians, uh, to engage with your uh, compliance boards. If you're a law firm, looking for experts, uh, clinical experts. You can go to medplace.com and take a read, take a look at everything that they're offering, figure out if this is something that is a good fit for you, and then simply go through the process of registering onto the site and start to put in your search parameters for what you're looking for. If you have problems with it, I can tell you firsthand, my team worked with some of Jared's team. To really understand how to complete the search functions, how to put in the criteria, what is it that you're looking for? I mean, you can drill this thing all the way down to find, to use Jared's term, that needle in the haystack that you're looking for. So, Jared, again, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate you carving time out of your very busy schedule to spend about 45 minutes with me and our listeners. Uh, I know. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I know I'm probably going to get some great comments about this conversation that we've had.
2: Well, Sean, thanks for opening the space to talk about technology, to talk about all this stuff. I thought I had a great time, and thanks for doing what you do.
1: Thank you. All right, to each and every single one of you, thank you, as always, for tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with me just for a little while. And Again, my very special guest today was Mr. Jared Bailey, CEO of MedPlace. Again, you can find them online at www.medplace.com. All right. I'll be back tomorrow on Thursday, the 25th of May with another installment of Legal with Lyles Parker. I'll be joined by the one and only Robert Lyles and the fantastic Ashley Morgan. So until then, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care.
0: You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the Vice President of Compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review, and we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy. (laughs)